Welcome back to Two Gals in a Glass Half Full. We are starting the month of November, and I would just like to say it's October 31st here and when we're recording this, and it is officially snowing. It is our first day of snow in Chicago. Um, it was like 70 last week, and now it's snowing this week. Welcome to the Midwest weather. <laughs> um so I'm excited as we start to talk about, uh, or as we go into November, we're going to start talking about relationships. And I think this is such a great and important topic um, that's relatable to like every person out there, every age. But before I get started, Dr. Jess, what is in your glass? I am working on my cup of coffee this morning. So it's a low acidic coffee with a little bit of half and half. And I'm going to be moving on to my smoothie shortly, <laughs> but I'm not there yet. <laughs> uh, Dr. Bobby, what's in your glass? Um, I have, so it was one of those mornings where you're running around crazy. Um, and I also have a dog that is failing and she's needing a lot of assistance. So this morning took a lot longer than needed. So all I could do was grab a little bit of crystal light, put it in a cup and out I head. So that is what I'm having this morning. Yep. And, uh, while Dr. Barbie is running around in the cold with crystal light, it is like, <laughs> like, I think the high today is like in the 80s. Here. Oh, now we I are getting highs like, like I think our high is like 37. And that's yeah. when kids are supposed to be trick-or-treating. Right. Yeah. We're our kids are gonna be like sweating because it's like I, I think when I last checked, like the high is like 80, 30. So by the time we're trick-or-treating, it'll be like upper 70s. But <laughs> and what are they dressing up as this year? So this year we've got a family theme. I love family themes. So my six-year-old helped with choosing the theme this year. So that's kind of, that's, I preface with what the theme is, is. <laughs> okay. So I've got my, it's a, he's a boy. And so we've got good guys versus bad guys <laughs> and the good guys are superheroes and the bad guys are werewolves. <laughs> Ooh. So we've got like, my parents are involved, you know, my husband and I, my two boys, we've wrapped in my sister as well. So it's, it's a awesome. Whole it's it's a thing, you know, and then we go around and we trick or treat. We've got our costumes, so it'll be fun. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, how fun! So, it is like you just ah, it is what it is. You just gotta roll with it. Well, and I, it's a great intro way to this because it's about relationships and your whole yeah. family's going. I think that's awesome. And that's like a big thing that we value, right? And in, in our home and our family and our neighborhood with our with our friends as well, is that multi-generational friendships that we that we keep and maintain. And so, and that's kind of what we're gonna be talking about today is kind of relationships through the phases of life and how are they important in different ways. And so uh you know, Dr. Bobby has a little one now, so uh, she's been doing like more of the reading recently on the importance of babies and relationships. So Dr. Bobby, tell us a little bit about like what you've been learning about babies and kind of how those relationships really get started. So I'll preface this with, you can find research that supports either sides of things. Um, and I think you can do that anywhere, but full disclosure, I have, I love my daughter. She is amazing. She's four and a half months today. But she is a big challenge. And, um, you know, you hear about those babies that are easy where you can set them down and they're happy, go lucky all day long. And that is not her. Um, she is very needy. Um, and but she's getting a lot better. So I've done a lot of reading because she cried a lot. There's people telling me I just need to let her lay down and cry. I need to do this, that. Um, she also had some health issues. And I just kind of didn't feel like that was the right thing. So I started reading a lot on 
infants in this age and what can we do to help them? And is what she's going through normal? It ultimately what she is going through is normal. But what I found is a, their only communication is crying. So either they're not crying or they're crying. And that's the only way they can tell you something. Um, a lot of people feel like if you respond to their cries, it's manipulation and they don't have the capacity to understand manipulation. Manipulation is where you forth, like you think ahead of like, if I do this, I'm going to get this. Whereas she is just, when she needs something, she just cries. That's her way to let me know that I need this. Um, and so if I respond to those cues, the more I respond to them, the better she's getting, the less she's crying because she just has a very strong will and her body knows what it wants and it wants it right now. Um, and so she'll go from nothing to screaming. So what I found and what I've read a lot of it is the more that you attend to them, the more that you help them self-soothe, whether that's sleeping, whether that's upset, um, actually in the long run, the more independent and the more confidence they will have in themselves. Um, so I feel like that's very important at this age is for them to create just a really good relationship with mom and dad and know that their basic needs of food, shelter, um, love, clothing, you know, all that stuff is going to be met. And the more that we consistently meet that, the more that we can proactively kind of know what is going on with her and what she's going to need to kind of prevent those outbreaks, um, the more she will learn to kind of just be calm inside and not so upset, so angry so quickly. Yeah, I definitely, I, I, so I have, I have met little one and uh, she, does, she gets riled. <laughs> um, a sweet girl, super sweet, so stinking cute, but like, woo. Uh, <laughs> and that's okay. Because honestly, like, you know, both of my boys did the same exact thing in just different ways. Right. My youngest or he was more chilled out. Like it would take him a little bit longer to ramp. My firstborn, he was a little bit, you know, like he would ramp faster for sure. But I think the more that we kind of showed them like, oh, it's that time of day, you can see the clock, you know, the last time they ate, you know, they're going to be hungry. And so, okay, like, hey, it's time. Are you starting to feel hungry? And they'll go, you know, Hmm. You know, it's like they're not paying attention to what their body is telling them until the signal is so loud that they're like, I'm uncomfortable. Right. But it's yeah. like trying to teach them to like pause. Let's see. Are you feeling something like are you thirsty? Are you hungry? Like basic, you know, super basic needs. Right. But the more that like you kind of keep talking to them, using those words giving them something before they're really like starving, you know, it's like, oh yeah, I could eat, <laughs> you know? And then all of a sudden it's like, yep, we're right on time for morning snack. So it, it's like, if you just kind of get into that more structured rhythm, structured routine, you know, you know what they look like when they're starting to get tired, you know, like, you know, as a parent, like what that looks like. So we need to start our calm down. Right. So we're going to go from like mm -hmm. this, you know, energy level, something really high that we're going to come into an activity that's a calmer activity because that's going to blend us right into being able to go down for the nap. But the more you're kind of teaching them what that structure looks like, the more they start doing it themselves and the more they start kind of on their own. They're going to naturally say, like, you know, we turn the lights off. They naturally start saying, oh, 
like, let's sit down. Like, mama, do you want to read a book? I'm like, oh, that's a fantastic idea. You know, like they naturally seek that out, but it takes you as the parent to really help them realize like, oh, like it's okay for me to have these outbursts and you're not going to freak out at me. It's okay for me to mess up and you're not going to scream and holler and yell because that's the only way they know how to learn. Like they've got to mess up. They've got to cry. They've got Mm -hmm. to go through that. And the more that you just stay consistent as the parent, then that kid, it starts to kind of like progress from like that little baby that just screams to like, they start pointing like, oh, this is what I'm looking for. And when you feel that connection with the kid, they've, they know they can come to you to get what they want and they'll be less reactive, but it takes so much foresight as a parent to be able to like, see it coming. Like you're constantly mm-hmm. thinking five steps ahead. And then it's like their mood and demeanor, you know, just really kind of room calms back down again. Um, and speaking to new parents, you know, I'm four and I, this is my first child. I'm four and a half months into it. And I will still tell you, there's times I'm not sure why she's crying. You know, it's like, okay, you're five, your diapers changed. You just woke up. Like, so like, it took me a good, I would say it took me a good three, three and a half months to like really know most of her cues. Mm-hmm. So if you're just starting out, like, it's okay to not know. I, I think for me to figure out how I knew is I just, I went through my diaper food and sleep. And I would try those three. And basic needs are the right. basic needs met. Right. Know? And yeah. normally um that is what um you know one of those things a lot of times would soothe her when she was not having now she full she was having some health issues in the beginning causing a lot of pain and stomach issues. And so that's different. She was kind of screaming in pain at that point. But once we got those settled after about two, two and a half months, then I could really start to see her routine. Right. Yeah. And that's what you're doing with her like neurodevelopment of her brain, right? Is that she's learning that if she comes to you and gives you a cue, you are going to help her figure it out. Mm-hmm. And so that's starting that relationship of this is who I can trust. And so mm-hmm. that's so important that that kids that are going to turn into healthy adults have that trust that's like inherent no matter what like you're not going to let me down like i know food's coming like again maslow's hierarchy of needs my food shelter and safety are met with this person and that starts the building blocks for every relationship that comes after that and so if she doesn't feel like she can come to you for her needs being met she's going to be dysregulated all the time. Right. And so, and that's kind of what we see with individuals that like, you know, babies that just get, you know, in orphanages, you know, throughout the world that are understaffed, I'm not trying to say bad people work there, but there's like significant social developmental issues that happen when they're not picked up. You know, if they Mm -hmm. just are left for hours to cry and they're not picked up and their needs aren't met and they don't learn that basic trust Um, I've done a lot of traveling throughout the world and have done a lot of service work. And this is a big thing in the organizations that I've worked with. If like, this is what we do, even though we have so many kids in our organization here, like we make sure we pick them up. They need to know that their needs will be met. It's just really hard with the staff we have, but we do it. And it's Mm -hmm. it's like, I had never even considered like, what do you mean a baby wouldn't get picked up? They're like, Oh yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, and they, they say, I've heard two things. Well, one, I have a personal story, but two, you know, you always hear like the quiet orphanages, they're quiet because the babies have learned no one's coming, you know, right. like they've learned that their cry doesn't mean anything. Exactly. But um, we have a family friend 
Interesting enough, just a week or two ago, we went to lunch and she was telling her daughter is adopted. Um, I'm not quite sure from where, but um, I think some Asian country. Um, And she got her when she was a little bit older, like 18 months. So it is amazing the things that happen during these first few months of their life, how that affects the rest of their life. And so she was telling us a story about how in the orphanage, they always put the babies to bed with two bottles, one bottle for them to have right then. And then they put another one in the crib for in the middle of the night when the baby woke up, the baby could find the bottle itself and feed them itself. Mm-hmm. And she was saying that, that her daughter had those, I think until she was like six or seven years old, like she had to go to bed with two bottles. Now, eventually they wouldn't put milk in it or anything in it, but she had to sleep with bottles for her daughter to be able to sleep. So it's amazing like that, you know, for her daughter at that time, that was her only comfort was those bottles and how Mm -hmm. her body and her mind remembered that even after being adopted and loved and, you know, showing everything, she still resorted back to those bottles for a long, many years. Yeah. That created the trust, right? Mm -hmm. Like the trust Mm -hmm. was now put on an object instead of a human, you know? Mm -hmm. So we ideally, (laughs) you know, don't want to do that. Right. Um, and so once we leave that baby phase, right? So now we've mm-hmm. got these toddlers, you know, he or she running around, you know, uh, starting <laughs> the interaction process with other peers, right? So mm-hmm. that interaction with parents, we know that's important. We know they need to be able to come to you to get their needs met so that they can then move on to that next layer of, of some type of relationship. And so this is where it's like so important for them to have that back and forth and start to learn back and forth play. And so, because it starts with parallel play, they're just in the same place, right? And they're like, <laughs> I'm doing my thing, you're doing your thing. We're just like tolerating each other's presence, you know, more mm-hmm. or less. Then they start saying, oh, you seem cool. And they're like, oh, and they, you know, they start by just like, I'm going to take whatever looks like fun. You know, to me. I'll just take it because I like that. And then they start learning how to do reciprocal play. So, you know, playing, rolling the ball back and forth. They end up playing chase. They go hide hide and go seek. All of this like back and forth play is super important because that's relationships. It's give Mm -hmm. and take. Think of just our basic speech patterns, right? I say something, you say something. I say something, you say something. That's how we interact. It's always a back and forth. And so it's really important that kids have this, like ideally, you know, get this type of interaction when it's age appropriate to have that interaction and they're not so isolated. So, you know, that daycare is obviously they get this, but if it's, you know, a stay at home situation, play groups, playing with neighbors, things like that, and letting the kids actually work it out a little bit themselves and not constantly interacting. And so it's, I mean, if they're screaming and pulling each other's hair, obviously like, Hey, like (laughs) not this way, Um, but they kind of have to just bumble through it. It's not going to, it's going to be messy at first. As long as nobody gets hurt, they've got to kind of feel the frustration and then say, oh, here's what I did and it didn't work. And then (laughs) here's what I did and it didn't work. And it's going to be, and it didn't work until it starts working. Right. Mm -hmm. So like anything in life, we're going to have failures before wins anything so like I think sometimes it's like we don't want our kids to have failures um but it's not a failure like it's a learning opportunity just rephrase that you know that's all that is so and I'm sure you have a lot of uh personal experience with your two kids going through these stages (laughs) oh absolutely yeah and it's like 
especially once the words start coming and like mm-hmm. they can better articulate how they're feeling, you know? So it's like, she grabbed the toy from me. Okay. And how does that make you feel? Frustrated. Okay. Now what's a solution for that? Tell her not to. I was like, did you ask her kindly not to? Uh, hmm. Why don't you try that and then see if it works? And then if it doesn't work, then come get me. Oh. like just like I'm not gonna yell at you I'm not gonna scream at you but like I want you to try some strategies before I intervene that's all and so and then if you haven't tried any strategies I'm definitely not gonna intervene and so you try and you've got to give it a try with something that might actually work so if somebody screams at you you're not likely to listen to them but if you in a calm voice say hey I would like a turn with that toy give them a win So if I can have a turn with this toy, I would give you this toy to play with. And they're like, oh, okay. And then boom, you just got what you wanted, you know? So, and they learned the give and take because maybe they haven't practiced give and take very often. Maybe, you know, maybe it's not something that they do on a regular basis because, you know, just depending on who they are and their personality and, you know, sometimes they have to learn that. So it's super important. I was going to say, and I feel like, uh, the involvement of parents in these situations is so important not to fix it, but to provide, as you just said, those, those learning opportunities. I've watched you, I've watched my other really good friend, Krista, and I see you two both as parents. And, you know, a lot of times it's, you know, teaching them, like I, you know, for example, I've heard Krista tell her girls, one of the girls was mad that this other girl was doing something. And she goes, well, if you don't like it, like a, you can nicely talk to her about it. But B, like you can also walk away and play something else like, you know, teaching them they have options and that they have the control to kind of try to fix the situation. But ultimately, you can't change a person. And, you know, I've heard her say you can't make her do this, play this, you know, give that. So like learning how to deal with those emotions and then what can you do to remove yourself or what can you do to express your feelings in a healthy manner? Right. And then if it gets to the point where it's not working and as a child, the strategy isn't working, then what do they do next? Like, I I always make sure that the kids, like, what is their safe zone? Who can they go to in that wherever their environment is and who's their safe person to help them navigate something? So at Mm -hmm. school, it's the teacher. So if you've tried it on your own, then you need to bring that to the attention of the teacher. And at that point, if if they don't listen and we really have some issues, then I'll get involved. Otherwise, the teacher needs to manage that classroom. If it's mm-hmm. after school program, you know, and there's like the counselors there, you need to bring that to the attention of the counselor. And so let them help you navigate that situation. So no matter what, anywhere in life, I still do this for myself. Who is my safe person? Who can I trust in this environment? Like, I mean, I know who I can trust. Who can I not mm-hmm. lean on? Okay. Mm-hmm. They're there. They're fine. We can be acquaintances. All of that is fine. I just know I can't trust that person. Like if I really needed to fall, they would let me fall, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm trying to teach them young. Who can you actually trust? And who is just an acquaintance that will let you fall on your face? You know, and so making that distinction is then how we get to that next level of like now we're in that school age kid. How do we understand friendships versus acquaintances? Because it's very easy to get those confused. 
just mm-hmm. because somebody is like fun and you play or you eat lunch together does not make that a true friend. They are an acquaintance and it is great to have both, but who can you trust? Mm-hmm. It's not I, very many people. It no, is, it's not. I read, um, I can't remember the research I read because obviously with her, I've been reading a lot, but I remember reading something and it said for those, especially like those school teenage years, it is the most important thing is to have one, one good friend. That's all you need. Um, is that one good person and one good friend, and it really will help them get through kind of those rough years. Mm-hmm. It's hard. Like, I mean, think about all of the development that's happening from like, especially middle school and high school. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got the hormones raging, you've got all of these like new interpersonal relationships, like they're starting dating instead of just friendships. And it's like, you think you can trust this person. And then they're talking to so-and-so behind the school. And I thought that we were like, dating you know all that stuff and my feelings are so hurt and you know like they have to feel that and they need to have somebody that does have their back that they can say you know hey I'm feeling this way and the person isn't gonna laugh at them you know um and that if somebody laughs when you are vulnerable um that breaks all trust and then they start to really mm, they're gonna they're gonna pull away from everybody And so if they have that one person that they can trust, it's like, it just teaches them like, it's not me. (laughs) The world around me sometimes sucks. Um, And it does real answer. Like you are going to be surrounded by people that do not have your best interest. They have their own best interest Mm -hmm. and that's okay. You just need to know that and don't put any sense of your self-worth into what they are saying about you or how those interactions are. It's very hard. That's a hard lesson. Um, And unfortunately we see it in a lot of adults too. Like I feel like a lot of those teenage things just go straight into adults. And if you don't do a lot of self-education, like self-improvement, if you don't have those good influences through those childhood years, Mm -hmm. um, it's a lot of work as an adult to figure it out. When you have at least one pure, like pure relationship that's healthy, what it's doing is it's teaching you solid emotional intelligence because you're learning to consider your friend almost as much as you're considering yourself, right? Mm -hmm. So if your friend is upset about something, you're going to feel, wow, that must feel very uncomfortable, right? Let me see what I can do to support them instead of having this like, well, that wouldn't bother me. So why are you mad? It's like, well, okay, they're clearly upset. Okay. So let's not make the assumption that if it wouldn't bother you, it wouldn't bother them. This is emotional intelligence, right? Being able to consider somebody else's experience as valid. What a concept. How many adults can do that? Oh, not many. Think about it. So, I mean, we see it in healthcare. We see it in every single profession. You've seen it in coaching. You've seen it all over the place. Low emotional intelligence leads to toxic relationships. It just does. They are incapable of being able to understand what your experience is. And so therefore you can never have a truly reciprocal relationship because they can't see your side. 
They can't feel your side. So they will only come about it from their own perspective. Mm -hmm. And so that's where you just have to recognize that and say, hmm, this is going to maintain as an acquaintance. You like you just and it is what it is like you cannot put your trust into them. And that's where you have to learn who can I trust and how can I build my emotional intelligence so that as I evolve through these stages of life, I'm growing and learning. And that's where parents, friends, grandparents, you know, family, friends, all of these people are surrounding when they say it takes a village. It does. Well, especially, you know. I, I, when it's your family that doesn't, ha- you know, it's sometimes it's almost even harder. Way harder. Um, Way when it's the family, harder. you know, yeah. I once had someone say, Well, I didn't make you feel like that. And I looked and I was like, You don't get to decide how you made me feel. Like, I don't care if that action, you didn't mean to do that. Like, mm-hmm. you made me feel like that. Like, yeah. You know, and there's the whole thing of, you know, no one can make you feel. Exactly. I felt this. You know, and it's in response to this, this is how I felt. And that's Mm -hmm. okay for me to say that as long as, you know, that's, that's fine. We can say how we feel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. But yeah, no, definitely. Those are that emotional intelligence is very hard for a lot of people, a lot of you. And I think it also stems from a lot of times people don't know their own emotions. So if you don't know and understand your own emotions, you know how to cope with them. I think that's even more important than knowing is how do I cope? How do I handle these? How are you going to then do it for someone else? Absolutely. Yeah. And there is like, like emotional intelligence trainings that you can do Mm -hmm. if it's something that you're like, wow, I'm recognizing like, huh, like maybe I could be a better leader if I learn this, or maybe I could be a better, you know, whatever in my career, you know, there's like emotional intelligence trainings and things like that. They have them for schools and for kids. And so I think a lot more dialogue is happening in this realm. Uh, But it is something that I think is important to see that this is something that slowly builds over time. And it's just like, as long as you're just consistent and strategic and having direct dialogue and giving those like very, very like back and forth candid conversations of like, how did that make you feel? I felt mad. Great. That's a great recognition. Now, how did you use that to then do something? Well, what do you mean? (laughs) Well, we don't just hold anger. Nobody wants to hold that. That's uncomfortable. Get that off. How do we get that off? What do we do about it? Well, I wanted to throw his toy. Okay. Would that then make your anger less? Or would that just drive anger out of that other person who's then going to do something to make you angry? Who's then going to do something to make you angry, right? Do you see the back and forth? Mm -hmm. Think about what's that next step going to be? And how is that next step going to actually get you to feel better? Instead of doing something that you know is only pouring gasoline on the fire. But as humans, we love to just be impulsive and react and we don't think ahead. And defensive. Defensive. um, And that's where we bring in mindfulness and pause. Pause before you say something. Think that sentence through before it comes out of your mouth, which is really hard as adults. So can you imagine kids? I mean, geez, that is so difficult. That lesson of pause, like, is this going to be inflammatory or is it going to be direct? Those are two different things. Direct doesn't need to be inflammatory. It doesn't. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-mm. Yeah. That's um I love when you say that pause because once you say something, you can't take it back. There is no, there's no wow. reeling it back in. And one of my favorite quotes, and I think it's so true, but sticks and stones may break bones, but words can shatter a soul. And I just think that's so important because once you say something like you, it doesn't matter if it's because you were angry, because you were drinking, because you were upset, because you were sad. Once you say it, it can't come back. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then that's kind of what leads us into adulthood, right? Mm-hmm. So ideally, if during our adolescent years, we're starting, we've made that at least that one close peer connection, we're starting to learn emotional intelligence off of a peer connection. That's what sets us up for relationships, mm-hmm. like a, a long-term committed monogamous relationship in whatever way that looks right. So how can we actually consider our partner in life? How can we consider their needs? And that's kind of that reciprocal back and forth relationship to not create something that's a codependency, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but something where you actually have a healthy relationship. And that just all of those years lead up to that. And that's, it's still hard, right? It's still hard to like find that person that, that truly connects with you and considers your needs and their own needs. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because like you still have to put your oxygen mask on. You still have to take care of you. You can't wait for somebody else to take care of you. You're not going to just lay there and writhe until (laughs) someone, boy, can I help you up? You know, like stand up, get to weight on your feet. Let's go. You know, like, like, no. Um, But how can we like create these these ideally, you know, marriages that will last long duration. Mm -hmm. And that still stems back to building the emotional intelligence and using all of those strategies and techniques to maintain those friendships to then be able to maintain that long-term relationship. And if it doesn't work out and, you know, something becomes, you know, disruptive and, you know, a split happens, it happens. Okay. Maybe try two, it'll happen, you know, a little bit better. Like that's okay. Like failures are okay learn from them it's going to make Mm -hmm. you stronger so nobody's pointing fingers saying like oh well because you didn't have emotional intelligence in your first marriage that's on you you know now you're failed no like it's just we're humans we're imperfect so learn from it grow from it what didn't go well what can you Mm -hmm. do to better yourself and maybe what are attributes in that partner that are things that you could find that are a little bit different in somebody else and then huh, fancy how that works. Yeah. Then it goes a little bit better. Yeah. So then we get into that older adulthood, right? So now it's like, you've done your career, you've raised your kids, you know, we've got all of that good stuff going on. And this is where Dr. Bobby and I have really gotten into the, um, blue zones and the research mm-hmm. on the blue zones. And it is just like, I mean, I am just like drinking that Kool-Aid. I yes. am like guzzling that Kool-Aid. I love the blue zones research. It is so simple. So simple. Uh, with, really, is- with the older adults, Dr. Bobby, tell us about those. I was going to say, well, before we get that, I'm so excited to be able, I hope, you know, we're going to be bringing more about this as we learn more and research more. Um, I'm currently reading two books and I have a cookbook from them. So I'm very excited. But well, first let's, uh, the blue zone, let's like, if you haven't heard of the blue zone, what it is, is there's, um, his name's Dan. He has over 20 years researched. Um, there's five areas in the world where 
there's the most centenarians, which is people that live to 100 or more. And these people are living to 100 more, not just in a bed crippled. They are very active. They are basically living to the top of their life all the way until the end. And then um, the kind end of, we call- happens quickly, right? It's not right, we're- slow, steady decline with pain and surgeries and medications. It's like, ultimately, they live until like, their bodies just kind of fail. And then it's like a quick boom, and then mm-hmm. you're out, you know, so it's mm-hmm. it's not this like, people think I don't want to live forever. That sounds awful. I'm like, but if you lived in a healthy way, you probably would, it, it'd be okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. and Netflix actually has a series right now on it. Like if you're really, it is really interesting. So he goes around and he interviews these five different places. Um, I know one is Okinawa, Japan. One is in the U.S. There's one in Costa Rica, which the interesting thing about Costa Rica is it is the one of the poorest places in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, the, where this uh, blue zone is. Um, one is, I think, like somewhere Italy, Greece. Yeah, I'm going to say Greece. Um, Greece. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. yes, I think you're Greece, Mediterranean. And then there's one more and I can't off the top of my head think of where it is. Um, right now. But so he studies the lives of these people and what do they do? Um, and what's really interesting is most of them aren't going to a gym every day. Um, they're just living their lives. They're working outside. They walk to work. But one of the really important factors he has found is relationships and community and social interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I can't remember which city country it was in, but they would work less than 40 hours a week. And they had six, I think if I remember correctly, somewhere around six hours a day of social interaction with friends, mm-hmm. um, which they aren't living these high lives in these million dollar mansions with you know, Maseratis, Lamborghinis, this and that. No, they're just your everyday person that has enough money to eat and be happy and to, they're still working a lot of these people. Mm-hmm. Um, but they spend a lot of time with friends and family and significant others and a lot of time with them. Yeah. And so that sense of purpose as you age mm-hmm. is a big thing that prevents cognitive decline. And so whatever that sense of purpose might be. So in a lot of these communities, there's multi-generational houses. And so the older adults are helping with the youngest ones while their middle adults are out during the day doing the harder work. And Mm -hmm. so that gives the older adults a sense of purpose, right? Because they're Mm -hmm. helping to guide all this emotional intelligence, social development, all the stuff that happens with the younger kids. And so that is really, really important. And at the same time, they're maintaining their friendships with their peers. And so that social connection and that community that has that they've had for probably their whole lives, you know, it's both. And so peers plus that multi-generational relationship as well. It's direct correlation with research to support a decline in the percentage of cognitive decline and cognitive impairments. Um, So it's like the number one thing that we can do to be healthier based on research that has been done over decades of collecting data is move. (laughs) And it doesn't have to be major movement like walking, navigating uneven ground, gardening, downstairs, gardening, multiple of the places mentioned gardening, gardening, all of them, I think garden actually. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they eat the food that they grow. So it's a whole foods diet without a lot of preservatives or anything like that, whole foods. And then they maintain their social connections and they have, they maintain that sense of purpose with whatever that might be. And so 
it's really not complicated. You know, like it, yeah. it isn't. We just leave such isolated lives the way we've done, especially here in the U.S., where we have our one house. You know, once our parents get older, we send them to a nursing home and they're isolated and we're isolated. And, you know, we put up our fences so we don't see people. And, you know, it's... <laughs> Um, it's just a very different way of living. And with that way of living, our, our lifespan is actually declining. Um, so the expected life of people in the U.S., it's declining. And so we can learn from these other communities. And that's the community in California. Is it the Loma Linda community? Loma, yes. Because yeah. uh, they are Seventh-day Adventists. And yep. Seventh-day Adventists do a lot of whole food, not meat. Um, yep community-focused, multi-generations, all staying connected, um, yeah, growing their own food, like, just making movement possible, right? So, Mm -hmm. like, I wanted to have a house in a neighborhood that had sidewalks. I I just, I wanted sidewalks. That's one thing I wanted. That way, when the kids can ride their bikes, we can do long distance and be safe about it. Um, It's just having ways to move, and it's safe is not always easy depending on where you live. You might, it might be traffic and busy and you've got to find ways to make it accessible. Um, so yeah, all sorts of like really great stuff with relationships. It's not only is it just important to help you feel better and keep your nervous system calm <laughs> <laughs> and lead to a happier life, but actually a healthier life and a longer mm-hmm. life, um, which is like kind of awesome. So um, coming up the rest of this month, we're going to be talking about relationships and we'll go into more like subtopics within relationships. But hopefully if anybody takes anything from this episode, um, check out that Netflix series on the Blue Mm -hmm. Zone. Like it's really, really cool. It's done well. I think it's only four episodes um, and I think you'd really enjoy it. So all right, everybody stay tuned for what's coming up later this month.